Hello and welcome to the podcast Neurific, the podcast on neuroscience. I'm Fabian Hübener and my guest today is Winfried Denk. He's a physicist and he invented the two-photon microscopy, which allows a deep look inside the brain. And he got many prizes for it. For example, the Kavli Prize and in 2015, the Brain Prize. Today I want to talk about his next big project, which is to map the entire mouse brain. Winfried Denk, thank you very much for having me here in your office in Munich. You want to map an entire mouse brain via electron microscopy that would reveal a structural map of every single neuron and even the synaptic connections. Why do you want to do that? Why do we do science? I think the question is, how can we understand the brain? And I've been less a person driven by particular questions, but by if you want the needs of the field. I don't really consider myself a neuroscientist in a narrower sense of the word. I'm, as I'd like to say, I'm the, the neuroscientist house physicist. Because with a little bit of physics, one can often do a lot of good in another area. And that's been sort of my mode of operations. In many ways, I started out with circuit diagrams as a, as a teenager when I fixed radios of my family's radios and other electronics. And so I was very glad to have a circuit diagram to, to guide me and to help me understand what was going on. And then I went on to study physics and so on and started working on two-photon microscopy, applied that to activity measurements. Activity measurements in neuroscience are a very satisfying enterprise because you basically sit there, either you listen to the, the spikes coming out of the audio monitor or you look at, at your screen and you, you see the, the cells getting brighter. You know that's basically what the brain does. It's, it's the neurons that are active in patterns and one has the satisfying feeling of watching the brain as it is thinking. But the next question, of course, is why does a particular neuron fire? And on the surface, the answer is very simple. It fires because it gets input currents that drive it, it above the threshold of action potential firing. But now the question is, where do these inputs come from? The neuron is making a decision. The decision is whether to be active or not. And it takes advice from a lot of different sources, something like 10 or 100,000 different sources. And it integrates that advice. And depending on what, whether the advice is, to, is, is one way or another way, the integrated advice, it will either fire or not. It's very important to know where this information comes from that tells you how it actually works. So if you want, the brain is all about information flow. I, another example I like to use in sometimes when I talk about this, if you think about how, say, the police understands or pursues organized crime, one important tool is to actually understand the information flow. Who talks to whom? That often gives you a lot of information about what is the structure, how does a system work. So, I mean, and electrical engineers, of course, have known this forever, that in order to reverse engineer a system, reverse engineering being in the process of understanding how a particular function is achieved by, by a particular design, they need the wiring diagram. So to me, it was always pretty obvious that the wiring diagram was important. In fact, there's, of course, a famous wiring diagram in biology, the C. elegans connectome, as it's now called, it wasn't called connectome. There is a bit of a controversy in this field, and the question is, can you study activity or, or function by looking at a static picture? Because function 
is a very dynamic thing. If if you look at the functioning of of any machine, things move, parts move, make sounds. It puts out outputs. It it does all kinds of things. So in in some ways, it seems heretical to say we can study function by just looking at a static picture. On the other hand, if you think about how often we look at say construction drawings of an, an engine or, or or something like that, construction drawing will come alive to the engineer by they can imagine how things will work, how things will actually, how the structure will turn into some, something dynamic. So, I mean, and, and this is, of course, our brain is particularly good at this because that's, that's in some sense what we, we do. We look at something, we see something, a, a bottle placed very close to the edge of, of a table, and we, we, we can imagine it being falling over, being pushed over by, by a, a small amount of force or even falling over spontaneously. Now, there's a more formal way of doing this, which is you can simulate what will happen by basically taking the structure and sort of trying to now use the laws of physics to to simulate what will happen. For example, people design electronic circuits. They simulate, before they actually build some some of the circuits, they simulate the circuits. And that gives you a pretty good sense of, of, of what will happen. I mean, it doesn't always work perfectly, but in many cases it works pretty well. But sorry to interrupt you, because you were mentioning the elegance. They found the connectome, but still it seems to be very difficult to understand the function. So I was just about to get there, maybe not quite as quickly as <laughs> I should have. In order to, to predict from the structure the dynamics, you need to understand the, the laws that govern the dynamics You'd need to understand the parameters. For example, if I give you an electronic circuit, a circuit diagram, but I don't tell you what the values of the resistors and the capacitors are, you will not be able to make a reasonable simulation of what 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 it does. But if if you have these numbers with a with a sufficient precision and you know the the way that transistors work, and I think one of the things that's been difficult is that, in particular, in say C elegance. Because nobody could make any electrical measurements, the the properties of the of the of the structural elements, the, the elements that you can see in the structure, were not understood well enough to run a reasonable simulation, for example. And it often you didn't even know the, the the sign of the of the connections and so on. So at some point, of course, if you don't know what the elements do, I mean, a circuit diagram is just an abstract painting, if you want, or an abstract. I like to make the distinction between uh, what I call a wiring diagram and a circuit diagram. And what we have for seal against is a wiring diagram, but we don't have quite the circuit diagram because the circuit diagram, in my view, also contains, in addition to the wiring diagram, the elements, the, the properties of all the, all the circuit elements. And it's sort of funny because we understand cells in the mouse probably much better than we understand cells in C. elegans. Because in the mouse, or in rodents, or in mammals in general, because there's a lot of similarities, obviously, we have been, or the neuroscientists, uh, have been recording electrical signals for quite a few decades now, and and we have a reasonable understanding how these cells actually behave. Could uh, still be better, and so on. But So that's why it may make more sense, or it may make, once we have to, connectivity diagram, it may actually be, be easier to make sense out of that in the C. elegance. If you think about evolution, it can either make an individual cell more complicated, more sophisticated, sort of tune the individual cell's properties, or it can say, okay, let's just mo do more cells and have sort of scale up things. 
if you scale up things, then maybe the, the detailed properties of the individual cells don't matter that much anymore. And you can actually, in some sense, do things by, by scaling the numbers. And that is another thing that may be one of the reasons why it's it's been difficult to to understand some of these more s- simpler systems like the C. elegans and the stomatogastric ganglion, which is another poster boy, if you want, of the simple but in the end hard to hard to understand system. There is a perception out there that it's the, if you want, the activity uh, measurement versus the versus the anatomist. And I think, uh, I mean, for me. I, I, having done both, I'm dispassionate about it. To me, it looked like at the time when I started this, and I think it still looks like it, that it's the bottleneck, the thing that really prevents us from making progress is more on the level of understanding the circuit diagrams. It's, it's somewhat ironic, actually, that a lot of activity measurements that people do, where they record from, say, multiple cells in a, in a brain slice and so on, are actually designed to mostly understand circuit diagrams. So they, they basically stimulate cells and look at what, what the next cell does, what is the input. So it's, it's in, in some sense they're measuring circuit diagrams using, using activity measurements. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if we could do this for all the connections with a sort of comparable reliability, and that's, that's a big if, then we would actually... I think have a, have very valuable information. I mean, the, from the fact that people actually spend a lot of energy, I mean, their personal energy, resources, their time, and so on, uh, to to measure these things. So, why do the whole mouse brain rather than sort of growing slowly? The last piece of tissue we did was something like uh, 300 by 300 by 100 or so my, microns in size, and now we go up and uh, many how many orders of magnitude. It's in some sense an extrapolation of frustration problem because whenever you have a, a limited volume, there's something very <clears throat> special about having the complete circuit of one individual. Because you can't, say, take a cortical column from one mouse and then do the next cortical column from the next mouse and then t- attach them because there's no way to match the connection. So you have to... And, and even though you can, you may start out with a very local question where you say, okay, I want to know, say, how, some example from our own work, how the signals that are generated in the starburst amacrine cells, which are direction-selective signals, get transferred, how, how exactly they are transferred to the, the ganglion cells. And you, that's a local question. And so you say, make, let's make a small volume. But then you see something in there and say, okay, I wonder what this cell, there's some, some process you see where that comes from. And then you follow it and then you come to the end of your data set and say, that's too bad. I should have taken a bigger piece in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so, so at some point, if you do it all, then, uh, then you never have that problem. Now, there, there's another, if you want political motivation for this which is that I felt that um, once we have a data set like this the people that could help us with analyzing as the computer scientists they can no longer ignore it because it, it will be such an intriguing I mean I hope data set and so it has a sort of it has an iconic character and that's why I felt this it is enough of a challenge There's, it's not a given that it can be done but it looks like there's a good chance that it can be done. And so that's, that's the right kind of thing for basic research because we don't want to have things that, that we know can, we can do, but we also want to 
We, we don't want to do things that we know we can't do. We, have, we want to have a chance of succeeding, but we don't want to be assured. It has to be... It's, uh, I mean, we have to have some suspense, if you want. Okay. You want to do that via electron microscopy. Could you explain in lay people terms how this technique functions? Okay, so how does microscopy work? So, I mean, in general, there's some process by which you focus some light or electrons or x-rays or whatever have you onto the sample. Well, let, let me talk about one particular type of microscopy because that's in some ways easiest to understand for me, which is what's called scanning microscopy. So when we look at something, we get the information all at the same moment. It's a parallel process. But we could also think of this as a serial process where we examine each point in the image in, in sequence. And this is where sort of my former life as a light laser scanning microscopist, that's what we did. So we focus a laser on, on some point, and then we see how much fluorescence is generated, say, with a two-photon process, which is not that important in this context, but it could be a one-photon, it could be a two-photon, it could be a three-photon process. Then we move the beam a little bit over, just about the size of the beam, and then we do the same measurement. And we do this... Um, a million times, and then we have, a, have an image. We go back and forth, and then we go down a, a line, and so on, to, and so on. And so, now, how how good could the resolution be? Now, you could say, okay, the resolution is determined by how much I move each time. But it also means if you only move by a small fraction of the size of the focus, then you're not going to get really much much new information. You want to move by about the, the size of the, the focus. And so what determines how small this focus can be? The resolution has, in many microscopies, has to do with the wavelength of the particle, if you want, that you use. So you can, you can use light. Of course, light is a special um, kind of electromagnetic radiation, which goes from radio waves to, to X-rays or, or, or gamma rays, and the wavelength goes from kilometers to sub-picometers or so. But it turns out that quantum mechanics told us from the beginning, basically, that that everything is a wave, even the particle is a wave. And the big advantage of electrons is that while light has wavelengths of hundreds of nanometers, electrons have have wavelengths of a few picometers. Mm-hmm. Electron microscopy is still the type of microscopy that gives you the best resolution available. It's just it's as simple as that. And so now, why do we need resolution? Because in order to to reconstruct the wiring diagram, we have to follow the wires. Now, one way to do this, say, if you think about the wiring in a car everybody, or, or, or any kind of wiring, the way that people sort of keep things apart, they use different colors, or they, the wires actually are ensheathed in different colors of insulation. And then you can say, okay, this is the red wire that starts with this and then goes through some uh, cable harness or whatever they're called. And then it comes out at the other end and there's only one red wire, so you know this is the one that's connected. And so... There's a technique called Brainbow that came out of Jeff Lichtman's lab at Harvard that is, takes that approach. Now, the other possibility is to say, okay, we just keep looking at the wire with a high enough resolution so that we don't lose it as we follow it. In electron microscopy, and that's the approach that Sidney Brenner and his lab took when they did the C. elegans connectome, they just sort of said, okay, we'll follow the wires from one section to the next, and we just have to make thin enough sections and we have to get enough resolution and that's what we get with the electron microscope and there you go it's just tedious and you came up with this block face scanning technique what yeah so when, when i when i got interested in this uh, probably about 12 13 years ago now 
I knew that one important aspect was one had to automate this. And one had to sort of see what the failure modes are. And the traditional way of doing that is by taking serial sections from a block using a diamond knife and then mount these sections on what's called grids and then put these grids in a transmission electron microscope. And there, there are a number of problems. First of all, you have to cut very thin. Then these thin pieces of slivers of plastic that tend to distort, they rip, they fold, they fall to the floor of the laboratory then you put them on the grid, and then the grid has to have sort of these grid lines. It has these crossing things, and so they obscure part of the image, which you, of course, can't have because you, your wire might run through that. And so then the idea was, and it turned out that there's actually a predecessor for that. I'll, I'll speak about this for in, in a moment. The idea was to say, what happens before I cut the section off? Section it is top layer of the block face. So if I can image the block face um, in the same way I can image... I mean, I can have a, a microscope that I operate in transmission or I can have a microscope that operates in reflection. And I mean, of course, the, all the fluorescent microscopes that we use in wide field fluorescence microscopes are epi-fluorescent microscopes. We send the light down to excite the fluorescence and then we use the same objective lens to come back up. So that's not quite as easy in the, in the electron microscope and maybe it's a little bit too technical to explain this, but in order to do the same thing in the electron microscope, you have to have a scanning system, which again is not a big deal. You basically, and the electrons, in fact, are easier to scan than light because the electrons have electrical charge and you can move them around using magnetic fields or, or electrical fields, which you can change very quickly. So, And so we tried this, we made these block faces, and then we saw that by looking at the block face, you can get pretty much the same information you can get from looking at transmitted image. And the reason this is the case now is that in the process of steady incremental improvements, the electron microscopes, the scanning electron microscopes, have gotten really good, and they have resolutions in the sort of single-digit nanometer range, which they didn't used to have, but they now have it. So now all that was left to do is have a build a special microtone that you could put inside the chamber of an electron microscope. So it turns out that somebody by the name of Steve Layton was actually employed by the National Institute of Health in the U.S., but worked, did most of its work in Woods Hole actually did already think of that and they had a, a prototype and they published a little paper where they said okay let's put an electron and microtron electron microscope nothing came of that it was an early 80s paper and so in some ways we rethought of the same idea which we originally hadn't didn't know about the other work but then we discovered this and so then we basically engineering from then on you sort of just build the thing you bug it you improve it you optimize it that time when they did this experiment or these early experiments it would have been very difficult to do this just because the data handling was not available i mean we couldn't even five years ago it would have been completely ludicrous to think of doing the whole mouse frame because the storage would be would have been too expensive and so on and now it's sort of at the edge of where it makes a certain amount of sense is it really at the edge already i read that it would <clears> take <throat> hundreds of years to map a complete mouse brain and there are all these numbers out like red cortex needs 1000 petabyte and so far no existing system could store that amount of information why, why do you think now you're ready to maybe map the brain in 10 years our estimate is that with the machine we're just getting, it will take us a few years, maybe as little as a year and a half, to get the, all the bad data for our whole mouse brain. And it will be stored in something like 100 petabytes, which is a room full of hard drive. Or we put it on tape, it's a big deal, but it's not inconceivable. 
okay, that some of the numbers are a little bit flexible or they vary partly because there's a discussion in the field whether we need 4 nanometers or 15 nanometers, which is uh, by the time you squared it in resolution, it's a factor of 10. So, But even 500 or so petabytes would still be a doable thing. So I think, I mean, in particular, if the storage costs keep coming down as they have for a long time now. So the storage costs and the time is not so much the problem. I think the biggest challenge that we face is reliability. Because if the thing breaks down halfway through, what are you going to do? I mean, we can't take half a brain here and half a brain here and then, then attach them. So we have to keep going in the same brain. And so if we lose one section, it's probably okay. But if you lose two or three sections in a row, we may, the whole experiment may, may, may go to hell. So you would expect maybe that it takes you a couple of years before you find the brain where you reliably get all the slices you need. Yeah, the two aspects. So first of all, we can, for example, diagnose the brain using X-ray micro CT. It's in some sense the same thing that people in the hospital to get an image. I mean, nowadays they use MRIs, but they used to more X-ray CT called X-ray tomography. But you can do this with very fine resolution around sort of a micron or so, which doesn't allow you to follow the wires, at least not yet. But it allows you to see whether there's some areas that are badly stained. It allows you to see whether there are cracks and all these kind of things. So you have to figure out how to judge our brains and we have to make the machines more reliable. Because, say, an electron microscope, what's, what's its usual op- operational mode? It sits there in a room, a facility, somebody wants to look at something, powers it up, puts the thing in, takes it, images a couple of hours. So the thing breaks, they call the technician, it is fixed, doesn't matter if it breaks occasionally. For us, it's different. There are all kinds of things in these machines that just sort of cause problems. And that after a while they don't work, there's software things that get stuck and so on. And so, I mean, this is all boring stuff, but it's sort of our daily occupation just to try to find these things. I mean, making experiments reliable is a big aspect of any experiment. And when do you expect to really start? <clears throat> you said in a couple of weeks you will get the microscopes here. Do you have to first do some experiments to see how, how it can be done reliably? Or do you say, next month I start and I hope it can no, no, no. Once we have the microscope, we're almost done building the microtome, but we haven't tested and debugged it. That will happen probably over the next half year, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half. And then we may start as soon as next year, and we may start in 2020. Mm-hmm. These things are usually slower than expected, and I'm not holding my breath. You have a special mouse that you're going to use. Have you decided yet, will it be a female mouse, a male mouse, or specially genetic engineered mouse? So the most important thing is it's not a dumb mouse. So in fact, we have discussed this issue with people that know about these things. And we're probably going to have something like a little mouse Olympics, where we actually sort of test whether the mouse has normal cognitive abilities. Or we try to catch a mouse in the wild. That sounds interesting. A lot of experiments are done, and this is actually an issue of major concern, on laboratory mice that have been bred in captivity for many decades, and they're very docile and so on, and everything is known about them. But who knows what's wrong with them? Because we know that to survive in the laboratory setting as a breeding colony, you don't need much brains because they're fed, there's not a struggle. So there's famous stories when people have parts missing of their brains and you don't even know this functional deficits unless you, unless you challenge them. And so that's a concern, but I think there are ways to address that. So the answer to your question is, yes, it will be a special mouse in the sense that we try to make sure it's not special. 
It's not special in the sense that it has all the, the abilities of a normal mouse. Now, it's not clear whether there is particular reason to use either a male or a female mouse. I think there's every reason to certainly in areas where other sort of more gross anatomical approaches tell us that there are some differences, that we should take one of each and at least look at this area and see whether we find differences. And the interesting thing, of course, is that you could argue that, say, the females are more complete. Or it started out with the females. I mean, you could say the Bible has it all wrong because, because all the, the all you need is a little bit of genetic materials from the males. So it's a very indirect contribution, if you want. And so, you could argue that would be the right thing to do. Now, as soon as, of course, you get into studying the female brain, you then have to sort of make another decision, which you don't necessarily have to do with males. At which point, for example, of the estrus cycle, do this. And so, so I think. Partly that is the reason why a lot of people have been focusing on male mice in their experiments, because you can have very different responses. So it's an issue. A couple of years ago, I talked with Tony Mofshon, with Kevin Martin, and they criticized the idea of mapping the connectome. I think the criticism has been diminishing, but maybe I'm wrong. Do you face a lot of critics these days? Um I think it's an essential part for me to be interested in anything, to have a sufficient number of people thinking that that makes no sense or that's nonsense. Because I think it's a particular joy of working on something that people are skeptical about in a very fundamental way. What do you think is a critique that most gets at you? Where you think, mm, this person could be right. This is really an issue I haven't thought about. Okay, so I do take this whole C. elegance discussion seriously. I mean, that there are explanations of why this actually isn't something that from which we can conclude that it will never be able to do something in a mammalian brain. Now, the thing that worries me really most is the following argument, which is actually not that frequently made, but it's still something that worries me. So the brain contains a lot more information than the genome, but the principles of computation are encoded in the genome. So if we could read the genome and we could understand how it actually guides the development of the brain, then the whole connectomics enterprise would be unnecessary, except if you also wanted to know the memories. We want to understand what the common principles are. We don't want to understand people's particular memory of a particular event. We want to understand how people can actually form such a memory, how they can recall it, how it's encoded, and so on. But we don't care about this particular memory. Maybe the CIA would. And there's sort of that thriller which you have if you could really read memories. That's now real science fiction. So the question is, if we really understood the logic of brain development we could actually make a large aspect of why we do connectomics obsolete. We could actually say, okay, we now understand how the guidance molecules wire up the retina, wire up the, the thalamus, and to wire up these things. And so I'm not sufficiently worried to give up the quest to do the brain with electron microscopy, but it is something that it sort of seems at some level silly to take a huge amount of information and then throw away most of it. Say our goal was to understand brain development as driven by molecules. 
any theory of how that works would predict a particular structure. And again, if you had even a single example of this, you could probably disprove or a lot of these theories, a lot of the ideas of people. And that's the job of experimental sciences in general. I mean, we only ever show that theorists are wrong. That's our job. But it is something that I do think about. Do you really think that even with sophisticated methods, it would be possible just from the genes to refer how then the brain wiring looks? Because experience comes in and epigenetics and so many influences. Oh, yeah, yeah, but okay, so experience is the source of memories, of course. And even in the brains of completely identical individuals will, of course, be very different. I mean, there's part of it is noise and part of it is experience. But if you are interested in the principles of how something works, you won't care about these differences between the individuals. But still you need experiences. You can't just see the genes, feed them into a computer program, and then you have a wiring diagram. No, no, no. So there is something called the Mandelbrot set. It's very illustrative of a concept. It's a very simple equation, and you can generate a very complex-looking, complicated-looking, very highly structured image. But there's not much information there. All the information is in that generating equation. And so, yes, there are very simple rules that, if you understand them, can give to very complicated structures. I think if we understood the molecules and their interactions and how molecules make cells do things we should be able to understand quite a quite a few of these things. But I don't know, that is a certain amount of speculation. But it's a little bit humiliating to think that my complex brain can be reduced to some very simple patterns. Mm, a lot of people have this feeling, okay, understanding nature demystifies it. But it's sort of creating something very complex using a very simplest, simple insight. It's something that's, that's what physics does. Physics basically says, okay, we have these very simple laws, and if you let them run, they generate atoms, they generate solids, they generate the sun, and everything. So it comes out of sort of a very simple set of rules. So I would actually find that very satisfying. Whenever we think about ourselves and put ourselves in the context of the universe, we have to give up a little bit of our egocentric view of ourselves and that's generally what I would say is a good thing and I don't find it humiliating humiliation is basically an erosion of dignity if you want doesn't rely on something being mysterious I think I would like to go back to some aspects of what connectomics already has told us that we couldn't have gathered otherwise. Could you give me an example where connectome data showed a theory to be false? Is there actually already something out there where you, where you would say, yeah, these data helped us to understand functions? At some level, I would say there's less definitive success stories or fewer definitive success stories that I would like. There were certainly some aspects of the retina wiring that we worked on for many ways that it would have been very hard to discover this with any other technique. For example, the retinal ganglion cell, there's a retinal ganglion cell called the direction-selective retinal ganglion cell, which if you move something in front of it one way, it may fire pretty strongly and move it the other way it may actually suppress its natural or spontaneous rate of firing. If you move it in the sort of orthogonal directions, then it doesn't make much difference. 
And so how does this come about? And that's been sort of a mysterious problem for quite a number of decades. Now, the direction-selective ganglion cells were discovered in the 60s. And the question was, are these resellers of direction selectivity in the sense that they have some inputs that are direction-selective, which then they just collect, and then they send that somewhere else, taking credit for it if you want? Or do they actually take inputs that are not direction-selective and combine them in a particular way to then become direction-selective? When we started working on the retina, this was sort of my two-photon days. And the reasons why the retina is a particular good object for two-photon microscopy is you can actually image activity without blinding the retina. So we discovered that there's one cell which has direction-selective signals in their dendrites. But they're everywhere, these cells, and they have sort of crisscrossing preference directions. Now the challenge for the ganglion cell is to connect to the right cells. And there are different ways of doing this. They could have the same number, but weaker synapses, and they could have stronger synapses, and there's a particular way how this, for example, development does this. And so I think we ruled out a couple of things that certainly were not how it worked. That's not quite as good an example as we wish for, but I think part of the problem is that we'll really be cracking and, and finding things once we have larger volumes. And this is partly why we were pushing for larger volumes. I mean, if you do ultimately the whole brain, because then the logic just becomes clearer. And is there anything what you would like to falsify where you would say, when I have the wiring diagram, I can tell you that can't be how you explain it? That's really not my job. I'm maybe too convinced that this will be a useful thing to even worry about it. Because I also feel that I have to be in some sense unbiased. I have to say, okay, this is my goal. I don't want to actually say, okay, I want to prove this particular thing because that would then sort of distort my view. So I think we'll see. You have a big problem. You still need humans to manually trace the connections of the EM sections. How close are you to a computer-based analysis? First of all, I don't think it's a question of being how close being to something that is a completely computer-based solution, which may be a long time off. The important question is, how much human input do you need? I mean, if you think of, say, somebody controlling a uh, hydraulic excavation machine, they have an enormous amount of mechanical leverage because they can basically pick up something like several hundred kilos of material with one swoop. If you do this with your hand, you can maybe pick up 300 grams or a kilo or something like that. What our challenge is to basically improve that leverage. And that has been improving, but surprisingly slowly. So it is something that I worry about, but I've decided that it's not my problem. In the sense that my goal is to deliver a data set that is good enough for that so humans can reliably trace it. And then I will say, okay, eventually one will figure out how to do this with computers. Now, I may get interested in that subject again, but at the moment I think my place in this thing is to worry about getting the data that are good enough. And good enough means that humans can trace with higher reliability. If that data set comes into existence, as I hope it will be, I, I talked about this before a little bit, then there will be, it will be worthwhile to put an effort into finding the methods to do that. And so that's why I think it's very important to have a, this an iconic data set where you say, okay, there's this data, we could learn all these, these kinds of things if you only had the methods because then a lot of people around the world will actually start working. We will work on the data set and trace it, but a lot of people will also work on coming up with methods to trace it. And now, even if I have no new methods, 
I can even at the current technology, I can tell, I can trace individual cells, and I could probably learn a lot of important things from just tracing a few cells and then jumping from one cell to the next through a sort of synaptic pop, and similar to the whole virus thing. I'm characteristically unworried about this. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like whistling in the dark. I maybe just sort of try not to scare myself. There's a very famous video clip out there with Sebastian Sang. I think over half a million people have watched it. And he claims, and others too, that deciphering the connectome would enable us to understand diseases of the brain, such as schizophrenia or depression. Isn't connectomics promising too much? I think on the whole, science has lived up to its promise. People try very hard to understand things, and just for the sake of understanding, and they end up allowing us to do a lot of things, allow us to cure diseases, do all kinds of things. I am not a friend of making any claims of how we can solve any medical problems, except that I will say that experience has shown that understanding how something works is the first step to how to fix it. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination in any of these diseases you mentioned, I mean, schizophrenia, autism, and so on. Now, people seem to have arguments that are not completely nonsensical that say they have something to do with connections in the brain, what so-called connectopathies. If that is true, then a technique that provides information about connections would naturally be something that would help. I'm convinced that it will help. Now, will it be the solution? Will it be 90% of the solution or 0.1% of the solution? I have no idea. Whenever we sort of get too much focused on something and solving a particular disease, it usually reduces the quality of science because understanding things in a fundamental way that then allows you to basically run through all the thinking and rather than sort of doing a particular thing and then you have to do the next and the next and the next. I'm also aware of the dangers of overpromising and I try to avoid it. Didn't I just promise you I would do the mouse brain connectome? No, I actually didn't. I think I just said um, there's a good chance it will fail. But there's also a chance it will succeed, so we'll see. No promises from me. Yet the idea that there is a possible commercial use would bring this field forward. Do you see any other possible commercial uses for the connectomics? I mean, sure. If somebody thought they could make a lot of money by doing mouse connectomes, I'm sure we would have a bustling industry that tries to do that. You probably don't care so much. Or, I mean, also you have a very nice situation here. The Max Planck Institute is really involved in the project. You get... What you need. You see, I, but it, there's another point. So if there was a commercial driving force to get this done, we would not need to do it. We shouldn't do it then. I think it is very different from the genome and very different from drug development, which, where you could imagine very concrete benefits because most treatments for anything are, are based on interfering with molecules. And so if you understand the molecules better, then it helps. Say if you could figure out what's actually wrong with the brain, what is wrong with the wires. We're not going to go and reroute wires in the brain. We try to understand what was wrong during the developmental process, and then we understand the molecules, and we're going to interfere with that thing. Let's think uh, ahead. It's 2020. You have mapped the mouse connectome. What's next? If I was looking for something new right now, it would distract me from finishing the other thing. So there is sort of a time where one just buckles down and sort of just tries to get the job done. And then there are times when one has this, I think, a certain amount of being sort of bored almost, which then can be a good starting point for doing something new. 
talking about big ideas. The European Human Brain Project plans to simulate a brain. There's a lot of discussion going on right now. Do you think that is a good plan and it's foreseeable? I think that it's not clear at all how you can simulate something without the necessary information. I mean, we talked about before about C. elegans and we, we talked about how we can't actually simulate it because we, we don't have the information necessary. Now, we have much less information about the human brain. Simulations in neuroscience, large-scale simulations. There have been efforts by some of the people that were also involved in the Human Brain Project. And as far as I can tell, the consensus is that nothing has come of that. I think it's a failure of the political process by which resources are allocated in science. In my view, the best thing would have been to shut the thing down as soon as possible. Now, that's not what seems to be happening. When you could spend the one billion euro of the Brain Project which project would you fund? I don't know quite whether we are ready to have a really big project in neuroscience. I mean, neuroscience has done quite well with being investigated, curiosity-driven small projects. Now, things like the connectome have the potential of, at some point, needing a lot of money. But at the moment, we're still in a process where we're actually trying to develop the methods and the principles. And I think it's too early. Because if you gave us as a field, a billion dollars, we would probably not make particularly good use of it because we don't know yet what to scale up. Because when you try things, you have to try lots of different things and you have to be very risk-loving. You have to want to, to take risks and, and you have to make sure you fail sort of a fair fraction of the time because if you don't, you haven't done something adventurous enough. But once you scale something up where you say, I only have one shot, this is going to either... If it works, it's fine. If it doesn't work, I'm not going to get another chance. you got to really make sure you know what you're doing. And so if you look at big science engineers projects like CERN or so on, I mean, there was a lot of legwork that was done beforehand, before people actually embarked on these things, and they started small and they grew and so on. I don't see anything ready yet that's ready to be scaled up. And I think in another five years, we'll probably have a better idea of what, what one could spend a billion dollars on. I don't know if you're interested in reading science fictions, but when you would ask to maybe give your input for a science fiction writer, what would happen in brain research in 100 years? The thing that one could worry about is the question of what happens when we really can, say, simulate a previously existing brain that, say, has died and then we've, we've created all the connections. We're actually restarting that thing. And, and, and that will raise all kinds of interesting ethical questions. And there's, there's of course, ideas one could think of a sinister one, of course, being based on the speculation that one might be able to read memories using using that, because of that would, of course, form suggest a way of getting at people's secrets, which is always an issue that people have wanted to. But anyway, enough speculation about the future. My last question, what do you actually like to do when you're not in the lab? Oh, the thing about science is it's profession and hobby and everything in, in itself. Now, I do take the odd picture, more like to calm myself down. I am an addict to science. That's a good last sentence. Thank you very much for the interview. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Neurific, the podcast on neuroscience. 
And you can find more interviews, for example, with Nobel Prize winner Edward Moser on the page neurific.com. And you can find more about my journalistic work on inward.de. I'm Fabienne Hübner and I wish you a very nice day. Bye bye.